I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband, both as the host of this show and in real life, where I am married to Rabbi Erica Gerson. Our goal on this show is to illuminate how the Torah is the guide for life, where every passage, verse, and word exists to help us live happier, better, and more meaningful lives in the most practical and always actionable ways. I am delighted today to have as my guest Tucker Carlson. I first heard of Tucker Carlson in 1992 when, as a college sophomore, I came across a magnificent article called Holy Dollars, The Secular Lessons of Mormon Charity, the author, Tucker Carlson, and the magazine, Policy Review. I liked that article so much that I decided to see if I could get an internship that summer at Policy Review in Washington, D.C. I had a phone interview that spring with Adam Meyerson, the beloved editor of Policy Review, and I got the job because we had discussed that article by Tucker Carlson. So when I got to DC, Adam showed me where my seat was, and it was in the office right next to Tucker. Tucker was 21, I was 19. I remember meeting him for the first time and telling him that I thought his article was excellent. He seemed surprised that I'd even read it, but we started talking and we never stopped. We spent every day that summer together and developed a great and deep and enduring friendship that has continued uninterrupted for the past 29 years. Tucker, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. That's amazing. What a memory you have. I'll, I'll never forget that. So first of all, thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. And I'll, I'll never forget when you came in. I've never, I've never met anyone. I remember thinking I've never met anyone like this. This, this sophomore at Williams College in Williamstown, Massachusetts. <laughs> well, one of the many things I remember from you and me that summer was you were married. You were 21 and you were married. You were the first person in our generation that I knew to have been married. I remember you telling me that Susie was the daughter of your the headmaster at your Christian high school. Yes, it's an Episcopal school. We're both Episcopalians. It's not a, what's the term, faith tradition in which, you know, young marriage is common at all. But we got married, you know, we started dating in 10th grade and dated all through college and then got engaged uh, Christmas of senior year in college. And it was considered, my, my kids always say, well, that was different back then. No, it was considered very strange. <laughs> very strange. If you were living in New England, you know, in, in Episcopal world is, you know, where we grew up and always lived. Yeah, it was considered very, very odd. It's now been, it'll be 30 years next month. And it, it's been wonderful. And one of the things I remember about that summer, and I watched you and learned from you in this way, is you would call Susie probably three to five times a day just to tell her how much you loved her. Yeah, I still do that. I mean, I've had all kinds of drama in my life in the 29 years since we met, but my marriage has never been, it never been a source of drama at all. It's actually been really, really easy, probably the easiest thing in my life. I mean, I've just always gotten along with her. And I think it's honestly, I don't think it's anything that I did. I think it is mostly just destiny or chemical or so. I just always liked her and we always got along and we changed a lot over the, I guess, 37 years we've been together, but we changed in the same way. And uh, yeah, I'm better with her now than I was then. And, and it hasn't been hard. It's not like, you know, I worked really hard on our marriage or something. No, I just, I've always liked talking to her. And um, I think she feels the same way about me. And we just became more alike over time. It's really been a, it's really been the source of all my happiness, actually. Well, so I remember um, about 11 years, after, 10 or 11 years after we met, I think it was the summer or sometime in 2003. And I was visiting you at your home in Washington. And I remember we were playing football outside. And uh, 
I asked you, uh, what is the secret to a long and happy marriage? Because even though you were in your early 30s, you had been married for 11 years. So you were qualified to answer that. You were married 11 years and you were very happy. And it was long, at least from my perspective that, that then. And you gave me an answer of advice that was just searing with wisdom. It was, in fact, the best piece of advice to this all-important question, what makes for a long and happy marriage, that I had heard up to then or since. Do, do you remember what it was, and do you still hold with that? Was it sleep with your wife as much as you can? Because I definitely think that's true. <laughs> uh, I'm not joking. I think that's really important, um, both in, in a sexual sense, but also just like share a bed with your wife. You know? and, um, but that wasn't it. That, that may have been part B, but part A was... <laughs> that was not it. <laughs> You said to me, isolate the things that people argue about that cause problems in marriages, that cause conflict in marriages, and marry someone where those questions won't even arise. Yes. Well, that is totally true. Well, and I said to you, what do you mean? You said, well, for us, you said a lot of people will have disagreements or conflicts about, for instance, whether their kids will go to a religious school. So it never even came up in conversation between Susie and me because we all agreed without even talking about that our kids would go to religious school. So source of conflict removed. Subject never came up. Well, that's, it's so funny you said that. That is absolutely right. That's, that's a foundational question. And I just had this, I, I literally had this conversation Monday night with a friend of mine at dinner who's Indian about arranged marriage. And he was saying, you know, the key to arranged marriage is the parents choose a spouse who shares the same assumptions, is from the same world. And he said, as an American, I have mixed feelings about this because I don't think that like your background should determine your future. And I said, I completely agree with that. On the other hand, as a practical matter, marrying someone who's very much like you and from the same world just eliminates an entire suite of potential conflicts. So that is absolutely right. I mean, I married someone who grew up, you know, about as close to the way I did as, as anyone could and had exactly the same beliefs. You know, on a basic level, we actually had sort of different politics, but at the time, politics weren't as important and she was much more liberal than I was. That's not true anymore, but at the time she was, but we, you know, we had the same beliefs about religion, the same cultural beliefs. I mean, there was never a question about, you know, do we celebrate Christmas? How do we decorate the house for Christmas? Where do we send our kids to school? What names do we choose? How do we, you know, think about the basic things in life? Like we just had the same assumptions and, you know, that doesn't eliminate all conflicts, but boy, it takes a lot off the table. And I, I do think that there are people from totally different worlds who have these passionate and wonderful love affairs that tend to lifelong partnerships. I, I think that, I, but I, and so I'm not arguing against that at all. I'm just saying in practical terms, boy, it, it makes life so much easier if you don't have to argue about the basics. And at this stage, like marrying someone who's got radically different religious or political beliefs or like ethical beliefs than you, I think it would be very unwise because you'd be setting yourself up for like real conflict, especially around children. Right. And, and you know, your, your wisdom way back then in the early 2000s, it really reminds me of some of the more recent psychological studies about willpower, which shows that our willpower is actually very weak and our desires will always conquer our willpower. Yes. Therefore, yes. how do we deal with temptations? Just remove them. Yes. Don't ask your willpower to do anything. If you have a problem with eating chocolate, don't have chocolate in the house. Your willpower is never going to beat your desire. That's exactly right. There's a passage in the Torah, you shall rejoice with all the goodness that Hashem, your God, has given you and your household. Why rejoice with it? Because we're inevitably going to do what we enjoy doing. Exactly. Oh, and I thought this when I was a kid and covering, I was a 
crime reporter and I was covering sex criminals and I was interviewing and I, of course, I wanted to execute them all and I'm still very anti-sex criminal. But I remember interviewing someone in the criminal justice system who said, you know, it's kind of a tragedy because a lot of these people, it was, it was around the question of chemical castration and chemical castration is obviously barbaric and no one's for it. But the people who were pushing it at the time, this was the early 90s, were child molesters. There were a number of child molesters who said, I want to be chemically castrated. And this was interviewing this person who said, you know, some of these people, you know, they're, what they're doing is evil and there's no you know, excuses that can be made for it. And, and we shouldn't. And obviously I never would. On the other hand, they have this overwhelming compulsion. Imagine if your sex drive, one of the most powerful drives that you have was misfired in a direction that, you, you know, that, that you found repugnant. Even if you hated the feelings that you had, it would be very hard not to act on them because it's very hard to fight your own desire. So I guess it's the same point, but it's just really true. Well, so I think the, the, our conversation about desire leads us directly into the uh, passage or really the chapter that you chose to discuss today, which is Genesis 3. Yeah, it's, it's, to me, it's the beginning of what we call in, in Christianity, the Bible. Um, and, you know, of course, it's, it's two chapters in. But, you know, the creation story is less interesting to me than the beginning of the ongoing disaster that is humanity, <laughs> which is, you know, a lot of what scripture is about is how screwed up people are. And I, and I, sh I should say this to preface this, that, you know, I, I on some basic level believe this is true, but I don't. And so I have religious faith and it informs the way I think about this, but I don't think you need religious faith to see this as deeply, deeply true. Do, do you know what I mean? It's, just, it's true about people. Absolutely. Well, the, the, the Torah, the Bible is our great guidebook and it's the guidebook for everybody. The Bible in Deuteronomy says it was written in 70 languages. It's God's gift to the world, no matter what religion you are, no matter if you're any religion, as, as long as you're a human being, the Bible exists and serves so well at guiding us in all of our decisions and all of our choices and all of our opportunities. I think that's totally true. And this chapter, you know, certainly I, I know there are many other passages that an atheist read and be in to buy and use this. It's especially true of Genesis 3. Hmm. So this is the story of where man went off the rails. You know, this is the fall right here described in this chapter. So what happens in Genesis 3? What's the drama? What's the story? So the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, are living in the garden and they're living in an idyllic state. And God says, you know, you can well, in chapter 2, God says, you know, this is this is great. Enjoy it. There's just one thing you can't do. Don't eat from this one tree. There are lots of trees here. They will sustain you. You don't have to look for food. It's literally growing on trees right in front of you. But just don't eat from this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's not recorded how they respond to this. We jump to chapter three and Eve runs across the serpent. And the serpent says to Eve, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And she says, no, 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 no. God says we can eat from the trees in the garden. You just can't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. You can't touch it or you're going to die. And the serpent says to Eve, oh, that's BS. You're not going to die. If you eat from that tree, you'll, you'll have knowledge. Your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He just doesn't want, God doesn't want you to have those good things. And Eve's like, really? Okay. And she believes the serpent. So she famously eats the fruit of that tree. And the second, and, and then she gives some to her husband and he does the same. He eats it. And the second they eat it, they have what the serpent promises they'll get, which is knowledge. Their eyes were open. 
And that turns out to be that knowledge turns out to be the disaster, not just of their lives, but of human history. And the first thing they recognize is that they don't have any clothes on. They're naked and they're ashamed. So they cover their body with fig leaves and, you know, they're busy sewing the fig leaves when God says, wait a second, where are you? You're hiding. (laughs) The first thing they did, they realized they were naked and they hid. Right. And so God calls out to Adam and says, you know, where, where are you? And Adam says, uh, I heard you and I hid from you because I was naked and I was ashamed. And God says, how did you know you were naked? Did you eat from the tree I told you not to eat from? And the first thing Adam does is blame his wife. The, my, Eve told me to do it. My wife, the, right. the, the, the woman you put me here with, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. <laughs> I just love, because it's like so true. I mean, we can parse this in a sec. But then God says to him, is this true? And she immediately blames the serpent. Yeah, the, the serpent lied to me and I did it. And then God renders his judgment and says, you're, you are cursed above all the livestock and the wild animals, he says to the serpent. You will crawl on your belly. You'll eat dust for the rest of your life. So the serpent is uniquely cursed, the snake. And we have an innate fear of snakes. And then he says to Adam and Eve, you're going to suffer for this too. And he, and he gives them each a foretaste of their sufferings, which are different because men and women are different. They have different duties and, and they have, in this case, different punishments. And she, he says to Eve, I'm going to make childbearing very difficult for you. Labor is going to hurt. You're also, by the way, going to desire your husband and he will rule over you. So he gives, he gives more power to her husband as punishment for what she's done. And then he turns to Adam and says, because you listened to your wife and broke the one rule I gave you, I only gave you one rule, you're going to have to suffer in order to to live. You're going to have to work. This is where work begins. And, uh, and then from then on, you know, they get names. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all mankind. Anyway, it, everything about that kind of describes the template for what life actually is on, on just every level. But the thing that has always jumped out to me since the first time I read that, and one of the reasons I became convinced that there was something uniquely brilliant and insightful about the scriptures was the sin is knowledge. It's not ignorance. So we're convinced, and I think people at all times in history have been convinced that the real problem is they don't know enough. But the ancient Hebrews realized something even deeper, which is the true tragedy is knowledge. I mean, that's that's why we're burdened. I mean, that you know, n- no other animal commits suicide other than people. And of course, the reason is we know too much. We know that it ends. We know we're naked. We know we have reason to be ashamed. We know we have reason to hide. It's knowledge that kills you. Yeah, v- very interesting. And Maimonides points out that Adam and Eve must have known there was such a thing as truth and falsehood because they knew there was something wrong with eating the fruit. If they had no idea that there was a difference between right and wrong, how could they have been held accountable for eating the fruit? So they clearly knew that. And so what happened when they ate from the tree? The Jewish teaching is that they substituted, in other words, we substituted true and false objective truth for subjective opinion. So it was true and false, and then it became good and evil, which is up to them, rather than being up to God, which is how he originally designed it. That's interesting. I hadn't I hadn't considered that. I'd have to think about it. It does. I mean, it, I guess on a more straightforward level, God tells them the difference between right and wrong when He lays down the rule. So I mean, it's it's God. It's God who describes you know what the rules are, and and there's only one, and they break it. 
which has always struck me too as like deeply true about people. People are self-destructive. Again, as noted, they're the only hmm. animals that kill themselves. But even you know the vast majority who don't harm themselves regularly, and they do it intentionally. Very interesting, right? They know something is bad for them. I mean, I think Freud wrote. Well, Freud did write extensively on this. Of course, we don't. We don't. We're not allowed to read Freud anymore, <laughs> which is a shame. <laughs> people hurt themselves. And in fact, I would say the overwhelming majority of damage done to people is done to them by themselves. And my father would just say that when I was a kid, he would say, you know, I, I, I know people. My father was an orphan, actually, grew up in an orphanage and foster home, had a uniquely crappy young life and had a, an unusually happy life, overcame that. And I think he would say, he does say that the overwhelming majority of problems that he encountered it in his life were of his own making. And that's true of everybody. You know, I knew a guy with no arm who led an amazingly productive and interesting life, had a bunch of children, just an extraordinary person, wrote the Americans with Disabilities Act, et cetera, et cetera. And, I, and I, he's passed, but I'm sure if he were here, he would say not having arms wasn't the biggest problem in his life. The biggest problem, you know, the problems were the things that, that he created intentionally. So we harm ourselves. Very interesting. And Adam and Eve harmed themselves. And I, I, I'm not quite sure where that comes from. I mean, I, I think it's, it's bound up with our nature, with our, you know, the fallen nature of man. But then, you know, Adam and Eve did this before they ate the fruit. So I guess you can't, you can't argue it's the result of sin. It's, it's pre-existing. It's even before that. Like we make choices that we know will damage us. And we make them not only in spite of that fact, but sometimes because of it. That we try to hurt ourselves. It's very, very, I don't know why no one ever says this out loud. Alcoholism is certainly bound up in that. It's fascinating. What you're saying is humans, we're the only animals that's self-destructive. Yeah, I mean, and not, and not just self-destructive. I mean, not, that's not just, a, it's not just a, a feature of our makeup. It's like a core component. Interesting. A lot of what we do is designed as self-punishment. And, you know, I mean, I, I would say there's a component of most great, you know, certainly of the Abrahamic faith that, that's about, you know, penance and, and suffering as a way to redeem yourself. But I'm talking about something that's slightly different from that. The, you know, the kind of lashing out against yourself, you know, the, the cutting that upper income teenage girls famously do is just one manifestation of it. But, you know, certainly drug and alcohol overuse is another, but there are, there are many. You know, you, you, we get in an argument with the people we love and we say something that's untrue and cruel and designed to hurt them. What are we really doing when we do that? When you yell at your wife and say something mean to her, as you know, every husband does over the course of a long marriage that happens. What are you really doing? You know, you're, you're trying to hurt her, but you're really trying to hurt yourself. It's it's the worst part of there, there was a study that from, um, I believe, 2008 from Duke that said that half of American deaths are due to poor choices. Oh, sure. This is obesity, smoking, drugs, alcohol, speeding. Now we can add texting while driving choices, whereas in 1910, it was only about 10 percent. But now from what you're saying, this passage has actually caught up. And now we can see exactly your interpretation here. And roughly 50 percent of deaths are caused by bad choices. Yeah, I don't know that people have changed much since 1910. I mean, there are probably many more you know, snares awaiting the average person. I mean, there wasn't, you know. I think it's in 1910, more people died of infectious, infectious diseases, which are now being cured. Well, that's exactly right. That's what I was about to say. In a world without antibiotics, a lot of people didn't live long enough to kill themselves. So the key misperception, I think, that people have when they try to assess, you know, smoking or drug use or 
drunk driving or not wearing a seatbelt or, or whatever it is, choices, as you put it, that lead to harm is that people are making these choices because they don't know any better. And that's not true. I mean, people know perfectly well that the things they're doing are hurting them and they're doing them anyway. And I would argue in a lot of cases, it's not despite the fact that these choices harm them, but because they harm them, they are intentionally hurting themselves. And because most people are so out of touch with their own motives, because most people don't know themselves very well, they don't take time, they're way too distracted to think about why they're acting the the way that they do. They're not even aware of it, but it's totally true. I started smoking in 1983, so that was a long time ago, but it wasn't so long ago that we didn't know that it was bad. You know, that was 19 years after the Surgeon General's famous report, Smoking Causes Cancer. I knew perfectly well, my first Marlboro, that this was was going to hurt me. And I did it anyway. Why did I do that? You know, on some level, I was attempting to harm myself. And we all do that. This is such a fascinating analysis for another reason, which is most times when we do something wrong, you're, you're so right. It's not like we didn't know whether it was right or wrong. We knew it was wrong and we did it anyway. Yes. But the conventional analysis is that we do it because we hope to gain something from it. You know, I want that object in a store. I can't afford it. I steal it because I want it. And I know it's wrong, but I've calculated that my desire to have it is more important than the concept of not stealing, of, of the commandment that tells me not to steal. I don't think that's the full picture. I think we steal it in part because we are trying to hurt ourselves. I mean, why do, you know, rich 13-year-old girls shoplift lipstick from Walgreens. You know, they don't need the lipstick. They want to get caught or they want the thrill of not being caught. Well, that's right. They're alleviating boredom and people do very poorly when bored. No, but they're also doing it because it's wrong. Right. Interesting. I mean, that's the thrill because it's breaking the rule. So, you know, you could give your average 13 year old rich girl shoplifter a case of lipstick and she, you know, what's she going to do with it? She doesn't want it. She wants to steal it because that's breaking the rules. So that's a kind of self-harm. And there's just so much of it. And because we're so completely out of touch with the way people really are, with the way that we are, we don't understand ourselves. There's no emphasis put on self-knowledge. There's a huge emphasis put on self-obsession, on selfishness, on narcissism. You know, here's another selfie of me. But that's a very different thing from self-knowledge. You know, what what do I really want? Why am I acting this way? That's not narcissism. You know, that's the beginning of wisdom. Well, Tucker, what a fascinating conversation about this extraordinary passage from Genesis 3, this great chapter of Genesis 3, this foundational story, as you say. Now, the concluding question of the rabbi's husband always goes from the sacred text of the Bible to another text, which is Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he tells the story of the book. He said, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war. He said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, two things. Number one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So Tucker, I want to ask you the same question, but really in two different ways. Uh, one, what are two things that you've learned about mankind in your three decades of serving as a journalist, of hearing people's stories, of recording their stories, of telling their stories in both print and on television. And two, when I first met you 29 years ago, you could walk down the street and nobody would know who you were. Your picture wasn't anywhere. Now you're world famous. What are two things you've learned about mankind as a result of being so famous? 
Oh gosh. Well, I mean, the, I would say the one thing I really dislike about my life is being well known. I mean, I, I'm not interested in that at all. I've never, no one would ever believe me, but since we're talking about scripture, I'll tell you the truth. I've, I've never wanted that. I've only wanted to be respected by the people I respect and loved by the people I love. Those have really been my goals since day one. I had an unusual childhood that, that made me seek only the approval of people I love. And so the idea of being adored or reviled by strangers has always been bizarre. It's like, why? if I don't know the people, why would I care what they think? And that's, uh, I've always felt that way. So for me, there's no upside at all in being famous. Um, there's certainly a lot of downsides to it. I'm not going to whine about it, but it's true. I always wanted to get out of debt. I hated owing money to anybody. So I'm I'd be grateful to make more money, but the fame part of it, I've, I've never liked it. But what have I learned? A couple of things. One, people are a lot more complicated even than they understand. They act out of motives that they don't even perceive. And it's, it's kind of hard to judge them, I guess, is what I'm saying. When I was a kid, I remember sitting on the porch with a friend of mine in Maine. We spent the summer in Maine with a buddy and his mother came out and we we're talking about something. And she said, you know, I just can't, I don't know if that's right or wrong. And he said, mom, why are so non, you, you can't judge anybody. And she said, you know, you'll know when you get older, you'll have the same experience. You learn how screwed up you are. And it's very hard to kind of claim to yourself, if you're being honest, that you wouldn't have done something similar in, in the same position. Like you, as you age, you realize I'm kind of capable of anything. I mean, thank God I've never killed anyone buddy or you know what he means slept with the au pair or, or whatever the crime is and i haven't thank heaven but it's hard for me with a straight face to say that i i wouldn't under certain circumstances like you, you need to understand how screwed up you are in order to see the world clearly and most people don't understand that um that's the first thing and the second thing that is very disappointing to me and it's on full display now is the herd instinct and it turns out that most people are not willing to bucket they may know that what everyone else is doing is wrong they may be dead certain of it, in fact, but they are still unwilling to be the one guy in the crowd who says, wait a second, why are we doing this? You know, should we really lynch the guy? You know, like maybe, maybe we should let the trial proceed. It's very hard to be that guy. And a, a, a distressingly small percentage of the population is willing to be that guy. You know, people don't want to stand out in a crowd. It's the bystander effect. It, it is. And, and ultimately what it is, is a lack of courage. And I, here I've just finished saying that I don't judge, but I, I must say I do kind of judge that. I mean, you know, in a time of crisis, and I think we're in one in this country right now, you know, people should stand up and say, you know, here's what I believe. I have a right to express this. And I have, in fact, a moral obligation to express it because I think that this is wrong. And a, a just a, once again, a distressingly small number of people are willing to do that. And it's really disappointing to learn that, you know, there just aren't many who are willing to go against the crowd. Now, let's just go back to the first thing you said, because it reminds me in, in that summer of 1992, when you and I developed this lifelong friendship, I remember having lunch with Irving Crystal uh, at the AEI building and Irving was 75. And I said to him, uh, what's the secret to a, I was 20. I said to him, what's the secret to a long and happy life? And he said, just never care what anybody writes about you. That is so true. And you, and you just said something very similar. Well, I really feel that way too. And I, I never say it in public because no one ever believes me, but like I've never, I don't read a word written about me ever under any circumstances. You know, I put all my eggs in a very few baskets. You know, I, I have uh, five other people in my family, I, in my larger family, there are three other people. And then I have really close friends and I care 
deeply about what they think. And if they disapprove of what I'm doing, I stop immediately and assess it. Fascinating. In fact, I have an explicit rule. If more than one person I respect and love gives me the same piece of advice, I will take that advice. In fact, I did a few years ago. I always rode a motorcycle my whole life. I love motorcycles. I hope you stopped. I Well, it's funny. I did. And I knew that I'm not coordinated and I'm also not afraid of them. So I was always reckless on a motorcycle. We're also not young anymore. That's true. But two people came to me, not my wife, but a friend of mine and my brother both came to me and said, you know, I know how much you love motorcycles, but you're actually the last person who should be riding one because, you know, you, you don't have very good vision or coordination and you're incredibly reckless and you should sell your motorcycle. And I had the same Harley Davidson from 1989 until a few years ago when I sold it. That, that day was the last day I, I rode it. Cause I, cause that's my rule. If two or more people, and it's a fairly small group, but whose opinion I, I care about, tell me something, I will do it. Because that's like a check against, you know, you don't want to like convince yourself you're God, you know, and you're the wisest person in the world. As my, as my father always used to say, the root of all wisdom is knowing what an asshole you are. And I think that's totally true. Know, how, know your limitations and you will be wise. But the flip side of that is, so I care so deeply about what a small number of people think. My wife looks at me cross-eyed. I'm like wounded if I can barely speak. You know, I really care what she thinks, but I really sincerely, truly don't care what CNN says about me or something. It just doesn't even register. It's like, why do I, you know, CNN, really? <laughs> like, I have no respect for them. So why would I care what they say? And I don't, and I mean it. So I'm usually pretty happy. So the, the lesson is be profoundly and deeply influenced by a few carefully chosen people and be not at all influenced by anybody else. That is that is the way I have always lived. Well, I, I know that's, that is the way you always live because I remember, Tucker, in the um, early to mid-90s when you started going on TV, I remember you telling me, I remember being in law school time, you told me, I want you to watch me on TV and call me and criticize me. Yeah, well, I cared about your opinion. Yeah, and 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 we would do that and I would criticize, and, and but you took what I said, and I was even younger than you, seriously, but then, and I would see that performance after performance or appearance after appearance, you would, and you would do this with a few other people as well, that you would learn and improve just as you were getting started. Yeah, I mean, I tried. I mean, it, gosh, it took me a long time to to get better at TV, like a long time, like 20 years, and I got fired, you know, because I, I didn't get, I mean, I, I was always a much better writer than I was a, t a you know, a public anchor. But anyway... I have never cared, and it's really helped me a lot. You know, I was little. I had a my mother actually, who left when I was very small, but was kind of a, a lunatic and just like kind of. I mean, this sounds horrible, but like just didn't really like us very much and was very obvious about it. And my brother and me, and I remember being wounded by that, of course, as you would be. But there's nothing I could do about it, and. Over time, and I don't feel bad about it at all now, and I mean that, but over time, it really changed my view. I was like, well, you know, it's kind of sad that my mother doesn't like me. On the other hand, I can't control it, so maybe I shouldn't worry about it because what else are you going to do? Hmm. do? Do you know what I mean? You don't really have any option. Like, you can't wow. make someone like you. So that was, you know, a pretty searing experience when I was in first grade. But by the time I got to like 10th grade, you know, you get over stuff like you don't have a choice. So you do. And I did. And, and now I'm completely over it. But the lesson always remained. If someone doesn't like you for reasons that you can't control, then, you know, you're an idiot if you let it bother you too much. Well, well, Tucker, I know you also have a, a book coming out in August. <laughs> yeah, I do.
So uh, tell us about the book and tell us where people can order it. And by the way, I saw what the book's about. I thought you were writing a sex manual. Isn't that what you told the publisher? I did. I did tell the publisher that I've always wanted to. I've always wanted to do that. Not that I'm particularly skilled, but so the book is not a sex manual. No, it's not. And if I were to write a sex book, it would have no pictures and no instructions. It would just. It would, in fact, it would be almost Talmudic in its perspective. It would be, you know, <laughs> take time to be with your wife in in every way. And like what, whatever. I'm not even going to get going on my theories on this, but it's amazing how inattentive men are to their wives, including in that way. And I just think that's like, what kind of marriage do you think you're going to get if you don't take time to affirm the romance that is at the very heart of your marriage? Like, that's the heart of marriage. Sex is the heart of marriage. Sorry, that's true. Both because it's a, it's a reproductive act, of course, but it's also the thing that makes you one flesh, that binds you together. That's why, you know, your wife is different from your coworker who you really like because you're sleeping with your wife. So sex is at the center of it. And it's amazing in the society where we're all like totally liberated and talk about sex all the time, how infrequently married couples have sex. It's like, what? Or how embarrassed we are to talk about it. That's like, that's like the one dirty stuff. But why do you think that is? Romance is the most magnificent thing in the world. It's one of God's gifts to us. And sex is a natural outgrowth of it. And marriage is the perfect place for it all to act. So wh why is it? You know, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think there, I think there's a kind of weird perversity that has descended on our, our very advanced and decaying culture that I hope is the beginning of a renewal, but it is, it's perverse. So like the message is that I, I talked to my kids about this, a couple of my daughters about it last night, actually at dinner, the message all around them. And they've grown up in, you know, rich person world, you know, just as your kids have, you know, in the kind of ruling class sure. environment of private schools and affluent zip codes and all the rest the prevailing feeling is that there's something gross about fertility. Like the worst thing that could happen would be that your 17 year old married unmarried daughter gets pregnant. And I've always said to them, yeah, I don't, I don't want my unmarried daughters getting pregnant. I think pregnancy childbearing should be, you know, within the bounds of marriage. I really believe that I argue that all the time. On the other hand, What's more depressing? You know, could you, if you could choose between your 17-year-old unmarried daughter getting pregnant or your 42-year-old daughter not being able to get pregnant, which would you choose? Of course you would choose the former. Hmm. What's really sad is that people aren't having kids. And there's a reason for that because we're telling our daughters that it's more virtuous to work for some freaking investment bank than it is to have children. Like what? Who came up with that? Like where'd that message come from? Not only is it corporate propaganda, but it's like anti-human and anti-happiness and anti-meaning and anti-joy. It's like everything bad. So it's part of that. Like sex is to be reserved for, you know, strip clubs or orgies, but like jumping on your wife, you know, I don't, that's kind of gross. Really? No, it's <laughs> just the opposite. Are you kidding? And it's never, there's never been a time when it's easier to be romantic. I mean, the access to Sinatra and Johnny Hartman and Ella Fitzgerald and red wine and nice dinners. It's just, it's so easy. We've now, it's so easy to be romantic. It's such a wonderful thing. And uh, I totally agree. We should do it more. And you should definitely have your next book be a, a sex book and put this in there. That being said, tell us about your next book. It's coming out in August. Everyone should get it. It's basically just a collection of magazine stories, but it's got a long preface. It's published by Simon & Schuster. It's the second book in a row I've written for Simon & Schuster. And in between the two books, I watched Simon & Schuster practice an especially aggressive form of censorship based on partisan considerations against a few of their authors. And I was disgusted by it. And so I told Simon & Schuster, I'm going to take this opportunity to report out and write an account of the censorship that you have been conducting against people whose politics you don't like or people the mob 
doesn't want you to publish and you shut them down. And that's a violation of the promise of American publishing, which is we're going to have an open marketplace of ideas and let readers decide. But you don't believe in that anymore. You've got you've let you know the authoritarian moment warp you and you've really become an, an instrument of kind of medieval thinking. And I think you're disgusting, which is what I think about Simon & Schuster. And I mean it. Anyway, I wrote all about it and I interviewed the editor of Simon & Schuster and the head of the company about it. And and um, I think they come off very badly. Really? Huh. Is this uh, J- John John Carp? Yeah, it is John Carp. John Carp was my babysitter when I was a kid. No way. He was a great babysitter. I remember he, he would kick the soccer ball up so high in the backyard. We had so much fun. He is a wonderful person and, a, and he was a great babysitter. His mother was my nursery school teacher, Mrs. Carp, when I was uh, at Temple Bene Gesture Nursery School when I was uh, three and four. That's crazy. Wow. Well, you got to you got to read it then. Of course, I, I'm, of course, I'm going to read it. Yeah. Because I had a very, well, there's a long interview with John Carp. In fact, the book is dedicated to John Carp. Yeah, and it's watching what's happened to John Carp under the pressures of the current moment has is, is been one of the most bracing and sad things I think I've ever seen. Well, this is going to be fascinating because in addition to being a, John, a great babysitter, John is a deeply thoughtful and intelligent and sensitive person. And I really can't wait to read your interactions with John around this topic. So the book will be out in August. August 10th. My, my 30th anniversary comes out, actually. Wow. Mazel tov. 30th anniversary. It's wild. So yeah, we're, we're not doing much to celebrate. I'll be uh, doing a bunch of cable shows to promote it. Pretty funny. Wow. Well, Tucker, uh, thank you for such a fascinating conversation on The Rabbi's Husband. And thank you as well for uh, 29 years of friendship. You're a lifelong friend. It's, a, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing, Mark. It really is in so many ways. And so many of the things that I observed and learned from you when we were young, me in my late teens and then early 20s have just have stayed with me to this day. And we talked about one of them today, love. And God willing, you'll come back on The Rabbi's Husband with another passage and we'll talk about other things that I learned from you back when uh, you were in your 20s. I love it. Thank you, Mark. That was wonderful. Well, thank you. God bless. Well, thank you all for listening to this conversation with my lifelong, wonderful friend, Tucker Carlson. It is always wonderful to reconnect with him. I always learned so much from him back from when I was 19 to now when I'm 48. And I would like everyone who listened to this podcast and previous podcasts and God willing future podcasts to go to the rabbishusband.com and to sponsor a surgery. These are surgeries of mothers and children in Africa whose lives you can transform or save by sponsoring a surgery that is all curated, all selected, all monitored, and all administered by African Mission Healthcare, which are Christian surgeons working in Christian hospitals, serving people of all kinds all throughout Africa. So go to the rabbishusband.com where you'll see a link to sponsor surgeries for those who need it most. And Erica and I are going to match every donation made up to a million dollars. So just write in the subject line, the rabbi's husband or Tucker Carlson and uh, God willing, let's save some lives together. I'm Mark Gerson and this has been the rabbi's husband and thank you for listening. Please go to Apple, to Spotify, to wherever you receive podcasts, rate, review, and subscribe. I can be found at therabbishusband.com or at The Rabbi's Husband on Facebook or Instagram. And I would love to hear from you. So please email me at mark at therabbishusband.com.